Welcome back to the Dinfos Way. I am Marine Corps Sergeant Anthony Pio, and today we will be talking with well-known Marine, actor, and recent Dinfos Hall of Fame inductee, retired Captain Dale Dye. We cover everything from his early years as an enlisted Marine in Vietnam, all the way to his most recent work as an advisor in Hollywood. Make sure to stick around to the end to hear Dale flip the script. All right, let's get into it. Well, sir, to start it off, I've got to know, what was it like to grow up in the 50s, and then how did you find your way into the Marine Corps? To directly answer your question, it kind of sucked like a Hoover vacuum cleaner. Um, but uh, the the deal was that uh, I really – there was no money for uh, scholarships. I went to a, a military academy, um, and I thought, sure, that I would be allowed somehow to get into Annapolis uh, or West Point. Uh, but I was too dumb, and, uh, and so I didn't make it. There was no real money for scholarships or any of that sort of thing. Um, so I was sitting on the curb in uh, Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Uh, it was winter and snowing, and I thought, well, my life is over. And uh, I turned around. I was sitting in front of the post office, actually, and, and I turned around and looked, and there was this A sign out in front of the post office, and it had this Marine in dress blue uniforms, lantern-jawed guy. And it just had one word right over the top of it. It said, ready? And I said, you know, by God, I think I am. So the next day I went in and enlisted, and that was uh, in January of 1964. And it was, uh, it was a different Marine Corps. Um, Vietnam hadn't really heated up yet. I had no idea what I wanted to do or, you know, I just wanted to get away from being a civilian puke. And so I ended up uh, going to the, in the Marine Corps and uh, ended up uh, in the infantry. I decided that's what I wanted to do and stayed there for about, uh, oh, I guess uh, three years almost, you know, following the next guy up and down the mountains at Camp Pendleton, uh, learning to be an 81-millimeter mortarman. And uh, one day this guy showed up. Uh, out, we, we were in some training exercise doing a live fire deal, and he showed up with a camera and a notebook. And I said, well, that's interesting. I, I was the editor of my high school newspaper. I think I know what this guy's doing. And he was a Marine Corps combat correspondent. So uh, I got to talking to him, and I said, listen, who are you and what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a Marine Corps combat correspondent and here's what I do. And, and I said, really? He said, oh, yeah, they have those. And there must have been in the Marine Corps maybe a double handful. Um, and, and I got to talking to him and he said, look, it's the greatest scam in the Marine Corps. You can go and do anything you want to do as long as you're smart enough, intelligent enough to produce a story or a photo about it. And I said, really? They let you get away with that? And he said, oh, yeah, it's great. You can do anything. So I said, well, look, how do I, how do, I do this? And he grabbed me and took me down. And, and uh, I think I, I met a couple of senior NCOs, you know, old guys who'd been on Iwo Jima and Okinawa and that sort of thing. And they said, well, can you write anything? I said, well, I, I'm pretty good at my name or, you know, what, what can I do here? And I got some kind of typing test on an old uh, – manual typewriter and they said well he can do that and uh, I think they they gave me a couple of little uh, news stories to rewrite or something like that and I did that and I said okay we'll buy it you're good and they changed my MOS I I got I had to go see a, a general officer at that point because I was a corporal in the infantry and they said well you know we're, we're not losing a corporal in the infantry to some kind of public affairs nonsense so uh, I managed to talk him into it and uh, lo and behold, um, they changed my MOS, and then I wanted to go to this. I had heard about this great scam called the Defense Information School, and the deal was it was at some army post called Fort ben Benjamin Harrison, Indiana, and all the guys I talked to said, oh, it's great. You go up there and just hang around with a bunch of doggies, and you'll be just terrific, and don't worry about a thing, and there's only a few Marines, and I said, okay, good. I want to do that. And he said, well, look, here's the deal, Ty. There's this new MOS, and it's called Combat Correspondent. You now carry that MOS. And I said, yeah, got it. What's the first word in that MOS? And I said, combat. He said, that's right, and that's where you're going, 
and we'll talk about this Dinfos nonsense when you get home. And lo and behold, that's what it was. I, off I went to combat, uh, knowing journalism in general and knowing what a news story was and uh, more importantly, knowing what a feature story was because that's really what we did. Uh, so I got attached to the 1st Marine Division and uh, for the most part, uh, we were really more employed in combat than even the infantry was because we had to run to the sound of guns. We had to chase that story. There wasn't any story if you weren't out there where they were. So we kind of got a reputation as, as uh, the guys they would welcome um, because we pulled our own weight. That was the deal. Never, ever, don't, never be a burden with the unit you're covering. And we became known as JARs, which had nothing to do with being Marines. JAR meant just another rifle, which is what we were for the most part. And it was a whole different deal. I mean, video had never been heard of. Nobody ever heard of video. And sometimes you worked with a, with a photographer. We Different MOSs in those days, military occupational specialties. Um, guys who were in uh, public affairs were 43s, and guys who were in uh, photo were 46s. And we used to pair up and, uh, and go and – eventually they never had enough of us. And so they would start issuing cameras to us guys, and we would go to the 46 guys, and they'd teach us how to do all of this. And so we became um, just de facto photojournalists. Well, look, the first camera I ever used in the Marine Corps, and, and this ages me terribly, was a, it was a 4x5 Graflex where you had to pull a dark slide and all that sort of thing. And you went around and shot grip and grins and award ceremonies and that sort of thing. So that was my first introduction to photography. Um, we, we did stories all the time. I mean, we wrote for internal and external uh, communication. And internal was where we focused because we were talking to ourselves uh, and doing the base newspaper thing, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, so we were focused there. But when we got into combat, the 35-millimeter SLRs were coming in, so single-lens reflex 35-millimeter uh, cameras. The motion picture guys shot 16-millimeter uh, Mopic, uh, old Filmo, uh, three-lens turrets and that sort of thing. Uh, and you just made do with what you could. Uh, sometimes you never saw what you shot. You just turned in your film and there you went. Uh, so now we have the Mass Communication Foundations course to where students are coming here for six months. They're being trained. And then even then when they're getting to their units, they're probably doing over a year of OJT. And then they're like, OK, let's go out. Let's go to the field to go shoot. What kind of OJT or on-the-job training did you do once you arrived over in Vietnam? Well, it was mostly, here's your equipment, here's your rifle, and here's your ammo, and uh, this is where we want you to go. Uh, so you, a lot of it you really had to figure out for yourself. I mean, we began to know that uh, we started working in beats. Like some people would cover 1st Marines, and some people would cover 5th Marines, and some people would cover 7th Marines. Um, and, and we would start trying to figure it out. Um, you would get a broad brush assignment like, well, we hear there's an operation with the 1st Marines up at Conchian. Go up, go up there and see what's going on. And we would have to then go and figure out um, who, was, who was the guy who would know something. And you began to do the Lance Corporal sort of uh, mafia thing, and you, and you got to know who the guy was that was going to be able to tell you what the hell was going on and show you on a map and that sort of thing. And so you filled yourself in, and then you would go find a home. And all of us had uh, favorite units and units that liked us and would, would take good care of us. Uh, and so you'd go f find your home and, and usually knew more about what they were doing than they did. And off you'd go and you'd patrol and then, uh, you know, the defecation would hit the isolation and, and there you were in combat. So a lot of it was, uh, was really significant OJT. What was your favorite unit? Oh, I had a couple of them. Um, it was uh, Echo Company, 2nd Battalion, 3rd Marines for the most part. Uh, they were a hot outfit. Uh, rental, rental battalion, we called them, because they were always attached to somebody else. And then uh, during the Tet Offensive in 1968, uh, I was uh, fighting in Huey. Um, and Huey was uh, a meat grinder. It was a pretty bad deal. 
none of us knew anything about fighting house to house, but there we were. We were inventing it again. And, uh, and then I got, I got very close with uh, Hotel Company, 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, and then on the north side of Hawaii, uh, Delta Company, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines. Uh, so I know for speaking for myself as, of, as well as a lot of other Marines uh, coming into the Marine Corps in current days, we looked at novels and different films, including Full Metal Jacket. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your experience with that novel and that film? Sure, yeah. Uh, here's an interesting pe- pe- uh, thing people probably don't know. Uh, the guy who wrote the novel, The Short Timers, from which Full Metal Jacket was adapted, was a man by the name of Gustav Hasford, who was a Lance Corporal uh, combat correspondent in my unit. He was a 1st Marine Division combat correspondent. And uh, he wrote that novel. Um, it was uh, in, in the, I guess, in the Argo of the day. It was a little anti-establishment. In fact, it was hell of an anti-establishment uh, thing. Um, but Gustav was that kind of guy. And it was picked up by Stanley Kubrick at one point and rewritten by Michael Hare and became um, what you know as Full Metal Jacket. Uh, and, and really, the, the guy who was a very, very good friend of mine, uh, Lee Ermey, uh, played Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, the, the drill instructor. And that was Lee. That was just like him. He's dead now. God bless him. But... Uh, but Lee and I were, at one point, the only two Marines in Hollywood, you know, that were really out there working, and we, we just monitored everything. And, but it was um, 50% of a good movie. Um, Lee was brilliant as a drill instructor, and we actually were drill instructors like that in those days. Uh, I know you can't be that way now, which is a shame, but there it is. And, uh, and then it it got into Stanley Kubrick's uh, version of what the battle for Hawaii City was about. And that was a little off uh, because I was there and I know it wasn't like that, but there you have it. Yeah, I know back when I was watching it, getting ready to go to boot camp, it would be kind of like a tradition, come home and you put it on, you watch the first half of the sure. movie and then probably one in every 10 times we're, we're watching yeah, through the second half. Yeah, let it go for the rest of it. Yeah. Nothing beats that drill instructor. You know, you're getting ready to go and it's still today in the Marine Corps, people look forward to that experience as different as it may be now. Lee used to say that that um, he was he was kind of sad that he did it that way. Uh, because it was how drill instructors really were back in the early 60s, and they were. I mean, you, they were so profane, it was hilarious. I mean, it's just funny. Um, you, of course, you couldn't laugh at it or they'd kill you, but, um, but he said what happens is that, that he had created a sort of an anticlimactic situation, and young men and women would go to boot camp at Paris Island or San Diego and expect Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. And, 100%. of course, they wouldn't get it. So, yeah. Did you go to San Diego or Paris Island? I went to San Diego. How was that? Uh, well, it was – I had my Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. Uh, it was different in those days. And they whipped you hard. And, of course, uh, we didn't have a lot of Marines. It was a very small Marine Corps, relatively speaking. And, uh, and so what, what happened was you got paid individual attention, whether you needed it or wanted it or not, by the drill instructors. Uh, but it was good training. It was solid training. Uh, not so much it, – it taught you what makes Marines different. And I know the soldiers and the sailors and the airmen will argue about this, but let them argue. The, the point is Marines have a special panache a certain imagery, uh, a certain thing that we carry around with us that just makes us, gives us a different perspective on things. Um, and and that's that comes from the boot camp experience. And nobody does it like we do it. When you went through, I know for Vietnam, they ended up shortening boot camp to be able to get more boots on the ground faster. Did you go through the full 13-week boot camp, or were you a part of the shorter generation? No, I got the full 13 deal, because 13 I, when I went in, uh, Vietnam hadn't really started yet. It didn't start till the year after I got in. So I got the, I got the full, <laughs> full 13-week treatment. What was that moment like when you found out, you know, we're, we're going over, like this is the year that it's really kicking up and starting? Well, we, I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. I mean, I was busy going on Liberty and all that sort of thing. I was at Camp Pendleton at the time. And, and so I said, well, somebody's at war over there, and I understand. Uh, and then suddenly, I think it was in August of 65, 
the 9th MEB uh, Marine Expeditionary Brigade went ashore. And I said, uh-oh, here we go. And, of course, I, I was anxious to go. I, you know, I'm, I'm in this to fight a war. Mm-hmm. So let's go. Uh, and I was anxious to deploy. What was that first deployment like? It was weird. Um, we do it differently today, thank God. And I think we learned a lot of lessons uh, from how we were deployed in Vietnam. Uh, we went over as individual replacements. You know, one guy who walks in with his orders and some gunny takes it and says, you go over here and you go over there. So for the, for the first period of time that you were in country, in combat, uh, you really spent it trying to get to know and earn the trust of the people that were around you. Now, of course, we learned that lesson. was <laughs> That was a mistake. And so what we did was we took the uh, units and we would send battalions over and that's sort of battalion landing teams and that sort of thing. So uh, it, it, you were a little lost. Um, and I think I was a buck sergeant in E5 at the time. Um, but I was a little lost lamb until I could figure it out. And fortunately, uh, we had a, a terrific unit of, uh, of combat correspondents who were. I mean, we we do anything and did anything and crawled all over the place. But we held our weight, and I think we were forgiven many of our sins because of that. Uh, and it was, a, it was a great experience. But the first deployment was really about uh, trying to figure it out. You know, who's, who's what and who's who and who do I trust and who do I believe and who's just telling me sea stories. And, and then you go and find your home and, and figure out who it is. But a lot of it was done on your own. Nobody nursemated you, and, and you really had to be motivated in order to get it done. Because if you didn't, you'd simply crawl in a corner somewhere and go to sleep. I mean, that, that was it. How many tours did you end up doing in total? Three tours. Three tours. Uh, yeah. Is there one that sticks out more than the others? Well, certainly uh, 1968 um, had to be the, the butt kicker. Um, that was the Tet Offensive. And uh, I happened to be uh, up in the northern part of the country at that time, uh, operating out of uh, Fubai, which was uh, uh, the base, essentially, of the the 3rd Marine Division. And we were in a thing called Task Force X-Ray, where we were 1st Marine Division guys, but we were sent up north to supplement the 3rd Marine Division. And just about the time we did that, um, the uh, Tet Offensive started, and, and it was a mess. I mean, we got, we got sent into Way City, uh, which was, a, it was, it was like King, King Nguyen in, in King Arthur's court. It was amazing. It was, it was, it was surreal. Um, we found ourselves in a big city. Nobody had ever, we know, we'd all been trained to fight in the jungle and that sort of thing. Here we are on the streets with sewer lines and things that we had to get into. And looking across the Perfume River, we could see this huge castle with 40-foot moats and 40-foot apron walls. And it was like the Imperial City, you know, uh, the yellow brick road. And here we are, and and nobody knew how to do this. So we kind of had to invent it on the fly, and we really did. In, In typical Marine Corps fashion, you know, we didn't have... You couldn't call in air, and you couldn't call in artillery, and you couldn't do anything. You just fix bayonets and figure it out, and, and that's what we had to do. But in doing that, uh, we got a lot of people killed and a lot of people wounded badly, and, uh, and that um, was a shame. But, but it, we came through it, I think, in, in typical fashion. We figured it out and, and eventually winkled the enemy out of there and, and beat them up. So once everything started to kind of come on the downward side of that as a combat correspondent your job is now to tell the stories of everybody who were in those moments and in those events how did you go about doing that listen it was really a tough deal um we knew because the press uh, the civilian press in those days had complete access they could do whatever there was none of this embed business i mean they just went wherever the hell they wanted to go and did whatever the hell they wanted to do um so our focus had to be on feature stories. Our focus had to be on Rudy in the rear rank with a rusty rifle. I mean, this is the guy whose story we had to tell. Um, and I think what happened was I began to understand that um, the gut of a story, literally, is the spirit 
of that little guy in the rear rank with the rusty rifle. You, you've got to be able to, and you, because you're a Marine also, you understand who he is and what he does. You understand how he feels. The challenge is expressing it in a fashion that civilians will understand or can get some inkling of how this guy did, what he did, and why, importantly, why he did it. And that was the challenge. That was, that was really, you know, you could read award citations all day, but you'd probably been there and seen that guy do that or seen that guy do something else. And even if you could interview him, and you frequently did, you know, you'd, you had to find the right questions to ask. What was on your mind, man? What the hell are you doing? And he would stumble through some answer, and sometimes you'd have to lead him where you wanted him to go. Uh, but for the most part, that was the challenge. The challenge was trying to find a way to explain that sort of activity to civilians for whom that was antithetical. It was absolutely the, the farthest thing from their experience or their mind. You had to find a way to explain it. At this point, have you had any kind of formal training, or are you still just going off of OJT? I'm, I'm still winging it from my high school newspaper experience. Uh, but I began, to, I began to discover that I had uh, a, a, not really unique, but uh, a strange ability to, uh, to understand people, uh, to look in their eyeballs and, and understand what's going on in their heart and what's going on in their guts. And, uh, and I guess because the same thing had happened to me, I was able to sort of transfer that experience. And, and as such... Uh, formed a kind of an understanding of what the gut is. And I think that was really the, uh, the beginnings, the inklings of my, my later showbiz career. Um, it, it, was, um, it was something I didn't understand technically, but I knew I had it, and I knew I could do it. And I knew that if, if I worked hard enough, I'd find the command of the language to explain it. And, and then I went to Dimfos, and they erased all of that and told me forget about it. But uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, with that being said, when was the first time that you actually came to Dinfos for training? Um, I guess it must have been um, – let's see. I got home from uh, the last tour in Vietnam in 70, 1970. So it must have been a year or two after that. And I was too senior then. I think I was a staff sergeant or maybe even a gunnery sergeant. And I wanted to go to Dinfos. I said, look. You promised me that I would eventually be able to do this. Come on, deliver. And they said, well, look, you're too senior now. Um, so you, you're supposed to know all that stuff they're going to teach you. So we can't send you the basic course. I said, well, come on. I, I heard this is a great deal. And finally, they said, well, look, we have this senior NCO course. We have this manager type of course. I said, okay, send me to that. And I think it was four weeks or five weeks or something like that. And I went to Fort Benjamin Harrison and, and uh, got a look at, at a schoolhouse um, and, and tried to understand what, what the Department of Defense was, was attempting to teach young photojournalists and journalists and that sort of thing. And, and I discovered that there's a certain commonality regardless of your service. What you're trying to do is two things. You're trying to, in some fashion, explain to young soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardsmen, um, you're, you're trying to explain why what they're doing is important. So you have to know why it's important, and Dinfos tells you that. And then you have to explain to a public who, again, in, even in those days, very few had military experience or particularly combat experience. And so you were trying to explain the importance of what was going on um, in your service or in your command to a disbelieving public. And it was particularly tough in those days, but believe me when I tell you, after Vietnam, the public was disbelieving. Uh, so you, it was always an uphill battle. But Dinfos knew that. The instructors knew that. And they would, they would emphasize that. They would say, look, here's, here's the sort of thing you have to explain. And and you should be senior enough now to understand how to do it. But here's what you have to do. Now that you've finished the training at Dinfos, you're a staff NCO, eventually a warrant officer, eventually becoming a commissioned officer. What was it like leading the Marines that were there alongside you to help, not necessarily combat, but to overcome the outlooks of the public that the Marine Corps was being looked at in that time? Well, look, I, 
I really enjoyed it, frankly. Um, there's a perverse sort of pride in, in being a Marine under pressure. And we were all under pressure at that point. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, I enjoyed it. And, and most of all, I enjoyed training young Marines. I mean, uh, I, th- I think I've spent half my life raising other people's children, you know, and, uh, and these young Marines were motivated. The problem was they come out of a civilian society, and we do everything we can to reorient them in boot camp and that sort of thing. But the civilian society from which they were coming at that point was pretty strongly anti-military, anti-war and that sort of thing. So we had not only to challenge what they were doing, but we had to make it seem like fun. There had to be a certain amount of smiles and grins and wildness going on so that it would seem to them that it wasn't all grim, uh, you know, you're going to die the next day sort of thing. And that was a difficulty. Moving forward in your career, you're transitioning from the Marine Corps to where you are now as an established member of Hollywood. How do you get to that point? You know, it's, uh, I'll tell you what the deal is. The, the simple answer is this. When you're ignorant, you can do a lot of things people tell you you can't do. And that was really where I was. Um, I had seen every military movie there was, I think. And, and the common denominator was they all pissed me off because they simply weren't what I experienced. And I said, who's... I see in the credits technical advisor somewhere, and it's usually, you know, Captain Umpty Frats retired. And I said, well, who is this guy? What kind of idiot is he? Has he ever been, you know, in combat? Why is he allowing that? And so uh, in my ignorance, I said, well, wait a minute. I have this $2,500 limit credit card. I think I'll just go to Hollywood and unscrew this. They screwed it up. I'll unscrew it. I know how to do this. I know how to train people. I know, I know how to tell stories. Um, so I went to Hollywood, um, and frankly, did not meet with great reception. They said, you want to do what to actors? I said, well, I want to train them. I want to immerse them in an experience that would help them understand the characters that they're playing. And usually I got thrown off the movie lots a lot, um, and I was about to give up. I mean, I was just, I'd learned to read the trade papers, daily variety and, uh, backstage and all that sort of thing. But I was not having any luck. I was just not being able to convince these people who'd, who'd made zillions of dollars on war movies without me that I had a better mousetrap. You know, I, I knew a better way to do this or a more credible, convincing way to do it. And, and I was about to give up. Uh, you know, I said, okay, I got beat here. Nobody's going to buy my trash. You know, I, I got to figure out something else to do. I'll go be a, you know, a corporate cubicle rat or something and, you know, or be a cop or something. And, and, uh, and I was fortunate enough to read, um, in those days, we actually read newspapers. They, they were paper and you held them in your hands. And anyway, um, and in the, I think it was Daily Variety, um, was a, a gossip column written by a, a guy named Army Archard. He was a columnist, uh, talked about Hollywood. And um, in Army Archard's column, uh, I noticed a little blurb uh, that said a heretofore relatively unknown writer-director by the name of Oliver Stone was going to do a Vietnam picture uh, based on his own experiences as a combat infantryman in Vietnam. And I said, whoa. If I can get a hold of this guy, if I, I can just reach this guy, he'll get it. He'll understand what I'm trying to do. But reaching Oliver Stone was, it was Hollywood, and the gate guards are all over the place and agents and managers and that sort of thing. So it was, it was a difficulty getting there. Uh, through some machinations that I can't really tell you about because the statute of limitations may not have run out yet. Uh, I was able to get his home phone number, and uh, that was a Saturday night. And uh, frankly, anybody else, if it had been anybody but Oliver Stone, I probably would have been arrested for stalking. But I got him. I had his home phone number, and I called him at home, and I said, look, here's who I am, um, and I understand you're going to do this war movie. I said, I died 33 months in Vietnam. I think I know that war. I think I know the people who fought it. 
And if you're going to do this, you need me. And uh, he bought it. He said, all right, look, here's the deal. I'm going to give you five minutes. So be ready for your best pitch. And he was cutting another movie at the time. We were in L.A. And uh, he was cutting Salvador. And, uh, and I got five minutes with him. And I made my pitch. And I said, this is what's wrong with war movies. This is how we fix it. All you got to do is trust me on this. And we sniffed each other like a couple of strange dogs for a while, you know. And, and then uh, he said, okay, here's the deal. He called me the next day and he said, I'm, I'm hiring you. And I'm gonna, you're going to be responsible for training the actors. And I said, okay. So he gave me 33 actors and three weeks uh, in the mountains of the Philippines. And at that time, uh, you wouldn't have known these guys, but there was Johnny Depp and Forrest Whitaker and Willem Dafoe and, and all these guys. Uh, and uh, the idea was I had to take them up into the jungle mountains for three weeks. And um, when I brought them down out of those mountains, no contact with anybody. I mean, they, they dug a hole and they lived in it. And, and they, you know, ate twice a day out of ration cans unless they <laughs> me off. And then they only ate once a day. Um, but I, I literally immersed them in how it was to live in the field in Vietnam. And, uh, and marched them, you know, 60 pounds on their back up and down those jungle hills and all that sort of So they understood the concept of tired. They understood those concepts. Um, and when I brought them down out of the mountains um, and we began to shoot the film, it, it, believe we only had $5 million to shoot this, and it's chump change. Um, but that's all we had, and we weren't going to get a dime more. So... Um, we, we went ahead and made the film, and, and while we were in it, there was this role of Captain Harris, the company commander, and Oliver Stone looked at me and he said, you're Captain Harris. And I said, no, I'm Captain Die. He said, no, you're Captain Harris, and you're going to be right now. Get on camera. And so that was my acting, acting debut, actually. Um, and we brought that little film home, and uh, it blew everything off the screen. It was... Uh, we we won four Academy Awards that year, including Best Picture and Best Director for Oliver. And I was invited to the Academy Awards and went there in dress blues, by the way, because cameras love dress blues. Um, and he was kind enough to recognize me in the audience as, as the guy who contributed most to the making of, of Platoon. Um, and at that point, all those guys who were throwing me off the movie sets and that sort of thing when I was trying to pitch this, they were all calling me now. They wanted me to work my magic on their films. And that's the short of it. Um, there's a lot more machinations to it. But over, I think, I think we counted it the other day, including Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers and uh, Rules of Engagement and Born on the Fourth of July and JFK and yada, yada, yada. There's been about uh, 52 movies, um, and I think I'm about ready to call it quits. So that one, uh, that one moment could have all changed everything, that five-minute conversation. Yeah. How is that pressure? Extraordinary. I, you know, I, I likened it to combat. I likened it to, to moments in way when I was sure I was going to die. It was that moment. It was a make-or-break deal. I had literally five minutes because he was in the middle of something else. And he's, he's a scratchy, recalcitrant guy. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a pain in the ass, and he's, he's hard to get to know until he trusts you. But I had five minutes to get him to trust me and to believe what I was telling him. And I guess, I guess my, uh, my Marine Corps public affairs experience played a role in that. Um, you know, you have to be able to sell it and sell it in a hurry, and it better be good, and I did. Yeah, I can definitely only imagine what it would feel like in that moment sitting across the desk with your whole future at stake in front of you. Uh, but once you got to that future, you had the opportunity to work with countless amounts of actors and personalities across Hollywood. Uh, looking at the military, the Marine Corps and the Army, you know, we have the Lance Corporal Underground and the E-4 Mafia in the Army. Um, if you had to place some of those talents from Hollywood into these different stereotype roles, 
who would you put where and why? That's interesting. I, in fact, I've never really pondered that. I think Tom Berenger would have been a Marine. I think uh, Willem Dafoe would probably be some kind of uh, mystic S2, G2 guy, you know, that, that consulted crystal balls and that sort of thing. He's that kind of guy. Uh, Depp, Depp would have been a good Lance Corporal. He'd have been a member of the Lance Corporal Mafia and probably run the thing. Uh, and I, uh, Whittick, Forrest Whitaker, Forrest Whitaker would have been a good soldier. He'd have been a, a spec four or a corporal and, and just stumbled around and then it, until somebody <laughs> off and then he'd beat the hell out of him. I do have to know, working in Hollywood, what was that transition like? Because I know as Marines, we often function, and especially being back when you were in, in Vietnam, you're living in jungle conditions. Um, and then all of a sudden you get to Hollywood to where everybody is very like, they want to be doing the thing that everybody idolizes. And it's a very uh, cushy lifestyle. What was that transition like? Well, I, I didn't really have that transition. I was broke and trying to trying to figure out a way to, you know, get them to pay me more money to do this sort of thing. And nothing succeeds like success in Hollywood. And, and so I was able to build that reputation. Um, it, it is a difficult uh, mentality, and it's full of temptations. Look, Hollywood eats young Americans alive. It literally does. I'm, I'm ashamed sometimes of, of the way uh, casting directors and, and producers treat young men and women who are just trying to be storytellers in their own right. Uh, they don't get a lot of respect um, until they become established uh, in a name. And, and that shames me a little bit. And so uh, while, while I was tempted by the, the alluring lifestyle of Hollywood, I, I really, because I, I just didn't like the way they treated people uh, and tried to be an example of how to do it properly and not that way, um, I didn't let it tempt me. Um, yeah, I made a lot of money and, and I bought, you know, but when everybody else bought a Maserati, I bought a pickup truck. You know, I'm, I'm still that guy and, and I want to be that guy. And there's a certain amount of imagery involved in that. Uh, had I uh, fallen prey to all those temptations uh, that money brings and success brings, uh, it, it probably would have blown my career uh, because I was expected to be that guy and I needed to keep that image intact. Okay. And then the next thing, it's kind of a series of questions. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Band of Brothers series. Sure. Um, I've heard, I was listening to another podcast that you were on recently, uh, and they talked about that being uh, one of the highlights of your career, and I heard you talk about it. Could you just tell me what is Band of Brothers and what role did you play? Well, look, um, I, I love the miniseries format um, because unlike 120 minutes uh, it, with a feature film, you've got eight or nine episodes to tell the story and to introduce the characters and get them to, uh, get audiences to love them. Uh, so I love the the uh, uh, the miniseries format, and in fact, I guess all right. Let me see if I'm gonna violate an NDA here. Um, we did Band of Brothers, and we'll go back to that in just a minute. And then we did Platoon. Uh, we did uh, The Pacific, and uh, I think this fall you're going to see the third part of the trilogy, which took us a year over in the UK to do. It's going to be the Eighth Air Force. Uh, flying out of Europe into Nazi-occupied uh, Western Europe, uh, which was a, an amazing undertaking. Um, but uh, back to Band of Brothers, it, it was an, um, such an extraordinary experience uh, to train those people. I was given carte blanche to train them, so I took them all back to 1944 mentality, isolated them, and trained them as I knew young paratrooper soldiers were trained in those days. Uh, and carte blanche, Spielberg and Hanks told me, uh, look, just get them in the mindset, get them in the ability to think this way and do that. And they knew from experience with previous films I'd done that if I could get them there, that no matter who was directing and that sort of thing, they were going to do the right thing and represent these people of Easy Company 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment. And then along the route, um, they said, and by the way, here's some brown shoe polish to put in your hair and you're going to be Colonel Sink, who's the CEO of the 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment. Um, and, and I love 
portraying people on film that were real people, somebody I can find out about and get my teeth into. And Colonel Sink's family in North Carolina were uh, were very kind. They uh, they sent me some recordings of the colonel. Uh, he was dead at the time we did this, but um, they sent me some recordings of his speeches so I could get that North Carolina drawl and talk uh, like he did. And And I was a little monkey i'd walk around the set with the earphones on and and listen to his speeches until i got it right Uh, and i had a great time and it 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 was sort of a natural progression um i had trained all these people and they knew me as uncle captain and and so when i became colonel sank it was just perfect it was just the right thing to do uh and and so that will always be one of the highlights of my career i think uh, looking forward, do you think that um, this next project that you're working on, is that is that looking like it's going to be your last one? I don't know. Look, I, I keep telling people I'm through and they keep calling anyway. And, uh, <laughs> you know, get me that get me that gray haired guy or get me die. Get get him in here. We need some military guy. Um, and, you know, uh, they keep calling. Um God bless him. Uh, there's a director in Hollywood named Billy Friedkin, William Friedkin. He did The Exorcist and The French Connection. And and uh, I got to know him doing a film with uh, he and uh, Sam Jackson and uh, Tommy Lee Jones called Rules of Engagement. And uh, and and Billy Friedkin and I got along very well. And, uh, and so he was just last year, uh, earlier this year, uh, he was doing a for I think it's for Showtime, a um, an excerpt from um, the Kane Mutiny. Uh, it's called the Kane Mutiny Court Martial, and uh, Kiefer Sutherland plays Captain Quig, and and uh, and I w- I'm on the court martial board. He but he absolutely insisted you have to come up here and tell us what we're doing right or wrong, and furthermore sit down here in front of the camera. So I can't I can't seem to get away from it. Uh, I guess I could I could you know be horrible about it and say, I won't talk to you or anything. I, that That's not in my nature. Looking forward now, you, you're an established member of Hollywood. You've had a successful Marine Corps career, and then you get invited back by Dinfos to be honored as a Hall of Fame member. What what was that, that call or that moment like? It was another surreal thing. Um, I mean, Hall of what? Wait a minute. I only went there a couple of three weeks. You know, well, it doesn't have to do with that. It has to do with what you've accomplished over the years. And the more I thought about it, I mean, it's humbling. It, it, it honestly is. Um, I've, I always feel when people say, look, we're going to give you a Lifetime Achievement Award or a Hall of Fame Award, I always feel like they're telling me that my career is over. And I'm not sure it is yet. You know? um, but but when, I, when I got to thinking about it, and I was actually inducted in the class of uh, 2022, I guess, last year, and I couldn't make it because I was doing a film um, – but when I got to thinking about it, you know, it's not so much that I deserved it, but that I can I can serve an example to folks who are doing what I did um, that, you know, there's light at the end of that tunnel. And if you pay attention and if you learn those lessons, sometimes not lessons that were taught in the classroom, just subjects that were introduced in the classroom at things like DINFOS, and you were able to dig deeper and expand on those things, um, then you've you've got some real insights coming, and and the, I guess uh, the the initial reaction is well, thank you for that, and and I hope that uh, to some extent I can I can serve as a, as an example. I can definitely say that you have uh, being a a more junior service member, being a Marine in general, being able to sit here and have this conversation. It's extremely motivating to hear the stories and the things that you've done throughout your career, showing that you can start as enlisted having not passed the, the Naval Academy exam three times and Marine Corps being your last turn to now being added to the Hall of Fame of a training school, having produced 52 different films and having this immense lifestyle uh, is extremely motivating as a junior service member to know that there is the potential to do that and to have you as a motivation for well, all that's of us very to kind at. of you to say that. Thank, thank you very much. So we like to end the podcast in the same way every time uh, by asking the question, what does the DINFOS way mean to you? The Dinfos way to me, I guess, means never quit questioning. A lot of schoolhouses that I've had some experience with want to provide you with the, the corporate answer. Now, here's the, here's the textbook answer. Uh, 
Dinfos doesn't do that, or it didn't do that when I was here, and I'm, I, I have a feeling it doesn't do that anymore. It, it tends to open the book, you know, think it over, do this, and, and it leaves so much up to you, and you must then produce. You can't turn the wrench this way or turn the screwdriver that way because there's no real answer to this. It's a steadily evolving thing, and I think Dinfos understands that and teaches that. It's awesome to hear about all the different accounts of you just being one of the most humble people I've had the opportunity to talk to, uh, constantly giving, not taking those fancy cars, just staying in the pickup truck. Uh, with that being said, I promise this is the last question. Okay. Um, do you have any words of advice or wisdom to future service members who are listening? Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, this is a country worth serving. And to do that and to do it properly, uh, keep your mind open, absorb, learn, Soak it up like a sponge because that experience will stand you in good stead. It will give you a break that the average civilian puke doesn't have and never will get. And, and if you're willing to do it and if you're willing to do it honorably and if you're willing to do it for selfless motives simply because it's the right thing to do rather than it will get me this benefit or that benefit, it will be an experience that will stay with you and color your career for the rest of your life. Thank you all for sticking around until the end. It was at this point in the interview that Dale decided he wanted to test out his skills one last time. He spent just a few minutes interviewing me about my time in the Marine Corps, as well as my time here as an instructor. I hope you enjoy, and we'll see you next time. You ready for this? I believe I am. Okay, good. Uh, Where are you from? Uh, originally, I'm from Grants Pass, Oregon. Uh, grew up there, raised there. It's a small town of only about 35,000 people. Did did the small town mentality, uh, would you consider yourself to have a small town mentality when you came into the Marine Corps? I would say so. I had a little bit of travel opportunities to be able to travel around the country and experience a lot of different things, but I don't think anything will quite compete with when I showed up at Marine Corps Recruit Depot San Diego. You get off that bus all of a sudden you have maybe one person you went to MEPS with, maybe one person you knew from your recruiting station. Uh, they mix you all up with your platoon, and that first night you're sitting in a room full of strangers, but then suddenly over the next three months you become best friends with everybody that you're stationed with there and that you went through recruit training with. But that small-town mentality I've seen kind of fade off now that I've had the opportunity to interact with so many different people from all across the Marine Corps, you realize that everybody's just one and the same. Would you consider that to be a culture shock? There definitely was a culture shock um, to joining the Marine Corps, not only in just the environment that you function in, it's so different from everything you see as just a normal civilian, but to be able to call yourself a Marine is a culture shock in itself. Uh, being able to look at people like yourself that have gone through and know that you hold the same title and that you earn the same title that they earned and now having that responsibility is a culture shift because you have to change the way that you act. You have to hold up the standard that all the Marines before you put there. That's, that's a, a revelation, obviously. Can, can you dig down and talk a little bit about the, that moment of revelation? When did you understand all that? I don't know if there's a specific moment. I think to this day I'm probably still figuring that out, what it means to be a Marine, what it means to hold the standard that was set before you. I think the Marine Corps does a really good job at putting us through different trainings and reminding us. Uh, every day we interact with Marines and we see Marines do great things. Uh, I think one of my favorite things about the Marine Corps is when you look at who is actually doing the work. It's never the, the sergeants and the staff sergeants. Like, we help, we assist. But if you look at people who have done things throughout the Marine Corps history, it's always a private. It's always the Lance Corporal. Uh, and I think as a private and a Lance Corporal, you're doing the work and you see the value in that. But once you become that NCO, you become that leader, the focus shifts to training. Uh, and being here at Denfos, it's given me a new mentality to see the way that the Marine Corps is pushing forward and truly what it means to be a Marine by training Marines. Well, it can't all be good. I mean, what happens? What happens when you find that that's, that Mr. Bumblebutt and so on and so forth? Are you able to – is that the kind of thing you find rewarding to be able to take him and fix it? 100%. Uh, there's uh, – one of my old mentors used to call him a can't get right or a private pile if we're going back to Full Metal Jacket. There's, there's always the one. Um, and being able to take that extra time and see that light bulb come on, especially in this job, is super rewarding. Uh, there's oftentimes we get people here who have maybe never touched an advanced camera. Uh, I think our current technology actually poses a very unique problem to the career field, and that is that everybody has a cell phone in their pocket. Everybody thinks of themselves as a photographer or a videographer. I can create a TikTok. 
But what they don't realize is that there's so much technique and so much intentionality that goes behind it that a lot of times people show up thinking, oh, this is going to be super easy. I'm going to push a button and record a story. But the thing that a lot of people miss isn't necessarily the technical aspects anymore, right? They can get a camera and within a couple of days, they can be pretty proficient. Um, the real impactful moment is when you can take somebody who maybe is able to capture things. They're able to go and show a B-roll package of Marines up doing a patrol, Marines doing a training exercise. But the real rewarding moment as a teacher or as an instructor is to see that person who is able to capture imagery be able to start to tell stories. Yeah, I get that. But listen, we're sitting here in the midst of advanced technology for all intents and purposes. And it it seems to me from what you've told me that it would be pretty easy to get wrapped around the technical axle. You know, this switch goes here and this does and I have to do three, four aspect ratio and I have to frame here. But in the, S, in the end, as I understand it, from what you've explained to me, you, you are in essence a storyteller. That is what we are. We are storytellers. Yeah. Well, is, is, there, is there a way that you keep from getting wrapped around that technical axle and remembering that you're a storyteller? There's a lot of different answers for this, but I think the Marine Corps does a good job for us. Uh, and what I, what I mean by that is the Marine Corps always does more with less. Uh, some of the other services may have better equipment than us. Some other of the services may have more advanced technologies. Uh, but in the Marine Corps, a lot of times they may hand you a camera that is 10 years old, that is far less advanced than what is currently being put out in the industry. Um, but Marines, we take those cameras and it forces us to be better storytellers. For our content to be able to compete with people shooting with cameras like RED cameras with a Canon Mark III, you have to be able to capture the essence of Marines. Well, it seems to me that you've done that. So try not to f*** off. Anyway, carry on. Thanks. 